This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Before we get to the next part of the show, I'd like you to consider subscribing to News from Science. Every week, we share stories from our news site, News from Science. Science journalists and editors kindly come on here and tell a story for our ears that they've been spending sometimes weeks or even months reporting and writing. If we were counting, our award-winning journalists publish as many as 20 stories a week, from tracking policy to investigations, international science news, and yes, when we find new secrets about mummies, we report on that too. It's an unbelievably valuable service. If you were here with us during early COVID days, you must have heard how plugged in and devoted our news team truly is. Please consider supporting nonprofit science journalism by becoming a subscriber for around 50 cents a week. To subscribe, go to science.org news, scroll down a little bit, and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news, scroll down a little bit, click subscribe on the right side. Welcome to the Science Podcast for December 4th, 2020. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the sister journals. First up this week, I talk with staff writer Meredith Wadman about how the new coronavirus vaccines work. They use mRNA and some potential side effects that might happen day of injection or the day after. Also this week, I talk with researcher Sing Chen about using a precise electrical stimulation of the brain to restore vision. Now we have staff writer Meredith Wadman. She wrote about what to expect from the two mRNA-based vaccines against COVID-19 that have very recently released encouraging results from their phase three trials. Hi, Meredith. Hello, Sarah. So as we speak, a vaccine, an mRNA-based vaccine from Pfizer, is winding its way through the emergency use authorization process, and the Moderna version may not be far behind. What do we know so far about how effective and safe these vaccines could be? Well, it's fantastic news out of these huge trials of tens of thousands of people showing that both vaccines are 95% efficacious in large numbers of people. Efficacious means they worked 95% in the clinical trial setting where 
everything was overseen and vaccinations were given in a standardized way. And it was just very carefully and professionally done, which isn't to say that wouldn't happen out in the community. But the reality is when you move a vaccine into actual use in everyday settings, be it at CVS or in the doctor's office, you're not going to hit that very high efficacy rate. You're going to hit something called effectiveness, which is a little less. But the bottom line is these vaccines, these two vaccines based on mRNA from Pfizer and Moderna look extremely effective. And that is just the best news since this pandemic broke out. Now, both of these vaccines, as we said, are mRNA based. What exactly does that mean? That means that they rely on a snippet of genetic code called messenger RNA that directs the vaccine recipient cells to make the coronavirus spike protein, that protein that studs the surface of the coronavirus and is essential for it to invade human cells. That's how the mRNA concept works. You deliver the genetic code. The code says, make this protein. And then the protein is displayed on the surface of the the vaccine recipient cells. And the immune system says, "Uh uh-oh, foreign invader. Let's marshal the troops to beat back this invader. Has such a vaccine, an mRNA vaccine, been approved or used before in humans? There has never been a licensed vaccine made using mRNA, meaning that regulators like FDA or the European Medicines Agency or other parallel bodies in other countries have never approved an mRNA vaccine. That being said, mRNA vaccines have been used in clinical trials as they were being developed for other diseases, like, for instance, Zika. So they are not completely out of the blue, as Mm -hmm. it may have seemed to come across in some media coverage. All vaccines can have side effects in some people. Are there any side effects that are specific to mRNA vaccines that people are going to be on the lookout for? Well, the first thing to say is that both companies emphasized in announcing their high efficacy results that the vaccines in these trials of tens of thousands of people also showed no serious safety concerns. So that's the starting point. Now, side effects that are short term in the, say, 24 to 48 hour period after you've been vaccinated, there are. And they are, they're under this heading called reactogenicity, which means a sore arm, a red arm, fever, chills, aches, feeling crummy, that's transient, that's unpleasant, but not dangerous. Both of these vaccines have that set of side effects. And in some people in the trials, they were labeled as severe in that they prevented the person from doing daily activities. They were so fatigued that they just had to lie in bed or their joint or muscle aches were so severe that they didn't get up and walk around. That is important to note because a subset of people are going to experience that. And they need to know that it's a sign that the vaccine is working because this is a sign that the immune response is ginning up and that while very unpleasant, it's not dangerous. But in terms of the experience of side effects, these are going to be transient in the first two to three days max, I would say. And could you just take a Tylenol and be okay? Um, You should definitely have some Tylenol or an approximate (laughs) the ready, I would say. If we're going to be prescribing it here on the show. Right. Yeah, you can, but you can treat it with common painkillers. 
Right. And just to note the quote unquote severe category of these side effects, meaning that they prevented daily activity and occurred in fewer than 10% of the trial participants who received vaccines. But they are going to occur in mild or moderate form in a lot more people. Right. So if you scale that up to a whole country, you're going to know somebody who might have reacted to the vaccine. Oh, yes, you are. Mm-hmm. And oh, by the way, this set of side effects is most likely to happen after a person gets their second dose. Right. And to be more intense after a person gets their second dose. I was surprised to learn that this was a multi step process. So you get a first injection and then a second injection. And this is for both mRNA vaccines. The vaccines, depending on the company, are separated by either three or four weeks. Then 28 days out from that was when they, in the trials, looked at, are people getting infected at higher rates? If you get vaccinated with one of these mRNA vaccines, you have your first injection, then you wait a certain period of time, second injection, then you wait another several weeks in order to get your full level of immunity. Right. And I think that's being conservative. You're going to have a degree of immunity even after the first vaccine that you didn't have before. And after the second, the immune system really boots into high gear. So it's not like there's a day on which you're not immune and then suddenly a day on which you're suddenly immune. It's it's a gradual progression. And even as we were planning this interview to talk about these two mRNA vaccines, another vaccine was announced. This one from AstraZeneca and Oxford University that uses adenovirus rather than mRNA in its delivery. How is that different? Here's a key difference. The mRNA in the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines is delivered in a tiny fat bubble called a lipid nanoparticle. That's how it gets where it's going into the vaccine recipient cells. The Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine uses a different delivery vehicle. It's a harmless cold virus. It's been tweaked so that it can't multiply inside your body. And it carries into the vaccine recipients a snippet of genetic code that once again tells their cells make the coronavirus spike protein. And when they do, the immune armies are summoned to fight the foreign invader. I'm excited that there's a new vaccine out there and maybe going to be made in 2021. Is it good to have so many options or would it be better to have everybody taking the same thing? Oh, no, it's definitely better to have as many options as possible. Consider that there are 7 billion plus people on the planet and ideally every one of them would get a vaccine. Of course, that's not going to happen, but there are different vaccines All will be useful if they're proven safe and effective in different populations. Some have advantages like being able to be stored in the fridge, like the AstraZeneca vaccine or another one from Novavax that's in phase three trials. The Pfizer and Moderna vaccines have to be stored and shipped at at very low temperatures. They're also a little more expensive. And then some of them are going to work better, for instance, in in 65-year-old people and older. And others may have better workings in in other subgroups. So we're going to need every vaccine that works to hand in order to beat back this pandemic. There's some talk out there that we shouldn't discuss the side effects or some of the consequences a day of for a vaccine because we might raise levels of vaccine hesitancy in people. But isn't it better to know what to expect? 
I think so. And a really interesting expert that I interviewed, Bernice Hausman, who studies vaccine controversy at Pennsylvania State University College of Medicine, said that it's really important to be transparent, that it's much better to say to a person, you could get a fever that's going to feel really bad. It's going to be temporary and it's not going to injure you, but be aware and have some Tylenol at the ready. Then to just have someone phone up the doctor's office the next day and say, what the heck? You didn't warn me. You've got as public health workers to get out ahead of these side effects and to be really careful in explaining that people could feel really, really bad for a little while. Mm -hmm. It's a sign not of danger, but a sign that the vaccine is working. All right. Thank you so much, Meredith. You're so welcome, Sarah. Meredith Wadman is a staff writer for Science. You can find a link to her story and all of our coverage of coronavirus vaccines at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an interview with Sing Chen about using a precise electrical stimulation of the brain to restore vision. Researchers have known for about 70 years that electrical stimulation in the brain can lead to the appearance of a phosphine. This is a bright spot of light that shows up, not because there's light there, but because of some other stimulation, like pressing on your eyeball. If electrical stimulation can make a light appear, how about many lights? Can we think about phosphines as pixels and draw a picture for the brain? How about a moving picture? Singh Chen and colleagues wrote about this approach in a paper this week in Science. Hi, Singh. Hi. The idea of eliciting phosphines, these little dots of light using electricity, has been around for some time, and researchers have been trying to make a visual prosthesis, a device to restore or supplement vision based on this idea. Can you describe how the visual system works now, and then we'll kind of talk about where the visual prosthesis comes in, how it replaces certain parts? So when we look at the world now, what's happening? So light comes into our eyes. It hits the back of the eyeball where the retina transduces the light into electrical signals that are sent to the brain. They are first processed in the back of the brain. That's called the primary visual cortex. And then they're sent to different other visual areas in the brain. So if you were going to use a visual prosthesis, like the one that you describe in your paper, where does the light go to? What's the detector in that system? You would need to wear a camera on a pair of glasses, which captures video footage from the surrounding environment. And that information would be sent to a pocket processor where we would use smart algorithms and AI to convert those video images into patterns of electrical stimulation for the brain. And we would send these signals to the visual cortex to stimulate exactly the right groups of neurons that would allow the person to perceive these artificial visual images. In your study, you worked with macaques and you used an array of electrodes implanted in their brains to help them see things. My first question with this is how were monkeys able to tell you that they saw something that you wanted them to see? We trained our animals extensively using visual tasks. So they were used to sitting in front of a computer screen and we would present visual images on the screen. And we would give them rewards for doing tasks in which, for example, they would report the location of a dot that we showed on the screen. And we measured their eye movements at any given time. So we always knew where they were looking on the screen. Mm -hmm. And we would present them with target stimuli. 
they would have to make an eye movement to a target and then they would get rewarded. What are some of the technologies that allowed you to make so many improvements in this approach? There were a variety of crucial innovations. One is the electrodes that we used were biocompatible and durable. Hence, we were able to implant them for years at a time. They were also very small. Hence, we were able to implant over a thousand of them in the visual cortex of each animal. We also had several developments in terms of the type of equipment that we used to record and stimulate to the brain. And we were able to really scale up from previous advances and to create an unprecedentedly high resolution form of artificial vision. Your approach has a number of improvements over earlier attempts at a device like this. For example, you use many more electrodes. Can you talk about how your approach differs and what's helpful about those changes? Previous studies have used electrical stimulation in the visual cortex to elicit phosphines. However, they were not able to conclusively determine whether the subjects could visualize patterns and forms out of these dots of light. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to scale up the previous approaches by implanting more than 1,000 electrodes in the visual cortex and have a much greater variety of percepts that we're able to induce. Your electrode placement was also different. Yes, we used penetrating electrodes, which are inserted around 1.5 millimeters into the cortex, whereas quite a number of the studies that have been performed before use surface electrodes, which simulate the surface of the visual cortex. So what this buys you, having more electrodes and having them embedded, is you can use less electricity? Yes, the currents that we use are on the order of 1 to 100 microamperes, which is easily 100 times less than those used by surface stimulation. In previous studies, some of the patients experienced epileptic attacks during stimulation and even in the years after implantation. This is one of the greatest risks for the patients. Not only will it make such a device non-viable, but people would really have decreased quality of life. In your testing, once you implanted these 1,024 electrodes into the visual cortex, what kinds of things were the animals able to reliably detect? They could detect the locations of the phosphines extremely reliably. They're able to perceive very simple forms, such as oriented lines and letters. And they're also able to report the direction of motion Wow. So that's a lot different than previous attempts where it was more of a yes, no, I see some light, I don't see some light. What was the big difference there? Is it because you're you're stimulating many points at the same time instead of in order and sequentially? I think it's a combination of being able to stimulate on many electrodes, which is much more than the dozens that have previously been implanted. And also the fact that we use such small currents, it gives us much more temporal resolution. So Mm -hmm. we can indeed stimulate simultaneously on multiple electrodes and this smaller likelihood of interference between phosphines generated on two adjacent electrodes. When you say that you were able to show the monkeys letters, are we talking fine print or the top of an eye chart? I would say somewhere in between. So my letters spend approximately two to three degrees of visual angle. 
So if you hold up your your arm in front of you, straight in front of you, and you stick out your thumb, that's approximately yeah. one degree of visual angle. So if you put two thumbs next to each other, that would be two degrees. Another question I had about what this experience would be like, we're talking about resolution. What about speed? How does how fast is this signaling compared to unassisted vision? So the experiments that we carried out involved the presentation of just one stimulus at any given moment. So we were not trying to create a video in someone's brain. We were simply showing one snapshot. However, at the moment, it's a matter of, I would say, a few hundred milliseconds. And this is limited by how fast the equipment is able to transmit the signals to the brain implant. And in principle, in the future, it should be possible to get the speed to approximately 25 hertz or even better, which is comparable to normal vision. So for next steps, will more electrodes get you better resolution too? This is a complex question. The resolution of vision depends on several factors. It's not just the number of pixels you have, but the amount of information that they carry. And previous experiments have shown that people were able to experience functional artificial vision, even with dozens to a few hundred electrodes. And so on one hand, scaling up the number should be accompanied by higher resolution. But at the same time, there are several things that we need to balance out. For example, more electrodes would entail stimulating on more electrodes. And it's more difficult to get more electrodes into the brain. It's also more power hungry in terms of the amount of current that you have to give to the tissue. And in terms of data transmission, so whether that's sending signals to the visual cortex or reading signals out, if you're sending that through a wireless data link, then you're also going to need more sophisticated computational power. Vision loss is a really widespread problem, and it can happen to a lot of people as they age as well. Is this technology good for many kinds of blindness or specific kinds of blindness? The leading causes of blindness in developed countries are age-related macular degeneration, glaucoma, and diabetic retinopathy. And these really affect a large proportion of the population, especially as we age. And the blindness that we are addressing focuses specifically on disease or trauma to the eye and or the optic nerve that causes the link between the eye and the brain to be lost. What if someone never had vision at all? Would this help them? We think that in the foreseeable future, this technology is best suited for people who have had prior vision because during the course of development, your brain is constantly exposed to visual stimuli and it is wired to be able to interpret the signals that it gets from the external environment. And people who have never had vision before do not experience the same wiring of the visual cortex. Thank you so much, Singh. Okay, great. Sing Chen is a project co-leader and a postdoctoral scientist at the Netherlands Institute for Neuroscience. You can find a link to her paper at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. 
You can listen to the show on our website at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. There, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. The show is edited and produced by Sarah Kresge with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.